Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm going to be keeping you company for the next hour and we'll be looking at some stories making the news here in Ireland and around the world. Coming up on today's show, Trump on trial. We'll speak to Joe Miller of the Financial Times to hear what it was like inside the courtroom this week. Maxed out Dublin Airport to stymie airlines growth in 2024. That's what the airlines say. We're going to look behind the facts and the figures with Ellie Donnelly of the Business Post. And we crashed the WeWork cult that has finally crashed and burned. We look at what it says about the cult of the CEO and about office culture in 2023. You can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. So first up today, let's start with Dublin Airport because for a few weeks now, the Business Post have been leading out with claims that the airport is full and the lack of capacity is not only affecting airline growth, but also could make the Irish economy suffer. Ellie Donnelly is a journalist with the Business Post and has been writing about this and she joins me now. Ellie, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. No problem. Thank you for having me, Mandy. Now, you've been writing about this, as I say, for the last couple of weeks about the capacity issues. It all started off with an interview from uh, Lynn Embleton, who's the CEO of Aer Lingus. She certainly came out swinging um, and we'll get into to what Aer Lingus's position is in a moment. But let's start with the basics, Ellie, um, and talk about how many flights and the capacity that went through Dublin Airport last year, just to give us a sense of the numbers that we're dealing with. I suppose the key number in all of this, Mandy, is passenger numbers. And at the moment, the current passenger count at Dublin Airport is 32 million. And just for context for listeners, this is a 20-year-old planning condition which was imposed under previous planning permissions granted for developments at the airport. These include Terminal 2 and the extension to Terminal 1. So last year, the airport welcomed 28.1 million passengers through its doors. And it's also worth noting, actually, to me, it's, it's quite interesting Cork, in comparison, had 2.24 million and Shannon had 1.5 million passengers last year. So Dublin Airport is just so far ahead in terms of our other main airports on this island. Mm. Now, 28 million, they're not at the the peak yet, but they're certainly nearing it. And there is a a study done, I think, by maybe an independent economic impact study that's been done that says that the airport is going to reach uh, 39% by 2030, but also projections that 24 and 25, they could grow exponentially as well. So the airlines are saying they're at capacity at the moment and, and that's restricting them from doing more. Is that right? Well, what it is, is we know the DA have had talks with airlines about, you know, what can be done for next year. And it's important to stress that, you know, nobody's going to be turned away from the airport this year as well, you know, but this is more... Um, next year and one of the things was that maybe ad hoc flights might be you know restricted and ad hoc flights for those who, who don't know where flights say Ireland are playing in the Six Nations maybe an airline might put on extra flights um, for that event to bring fans over or we had you know 40,000 people here for the American football there was flights put on then to accommodate those passengers. So that is one of the things that has been discussed with the airlines is around those ad hoc flights. Mm, yeah, and they're really not happy about that. And you can understand why. It is a big, it's good, look, it's, I think it's 2% of their business. So it's, it's, it's not insignificant, not only to the airlines, but also, I suppose, the tertiary um, industries around it, the, the tourism providers, you know, the sports providers. Absolutely. And you mentioned there, Lynn Embleton, she said that the, the 
issue with the passenger cap is a national interest in terms of what aviation brings to jobs, for the economy, for foreign direct investment. I mean, really, it is the, the gateway to the country in, in some respects. Mm. Now, you made a very valid point at the beginning there that these passenger caps are 20 years old and I think they're not set to end until 2025. So what happens now? Like how how do the DAA try to expand that? Who do they have to petition? What do they have to do? Well, we know that the DA intends to submit a planning application to Bingal County Council in a matter of weeks to increase this cap to over 40 million passengers. Now, obviously, with the way that numbers are going, this needs to be, as far as you know, Dublin Airport's concerned, this needs to be done as soon as possible. Yeah. But I think anybody familiar with the planning process in this country will know that it, it's not a quick decision. You know, this mm. needs to take time. So we don't know then beyond 2023 what could happen then? You know, will there be issues with growth around the airport? That remains to be seen. Yeah, and that's that's another big, big question because if the application from DAA is for a 40 million cap, then there's other questions that others have to answer, which is uh, how would they deal with that capacity? I mean, beyond the airport this year, we saw they can't always deal with the parking capacity for the numbers that they have whilst they've got their arms around the security issues you'd wonder uh, if there was a big increase would they be able to continually deal with that so um, you know there's a much bigger concern isn't there than just the DAA putting in an extra um, you know six million on top of what they already have There is no to be fair, the passenger delays is very much seems to be under control. Any figures in the DAA, it looks like around 90% of passengers are, are through security in under 20 minutes. But I mean, you know, they did have to during the summer, you know, talk about, you know, putting out notices that car parking was restricted at one or two points during the summer. And then also, we're still waiting on this metro to get to the airport. So if you're not living in Dublin and if you need to get to the airport, you can get a bus, but it's not always a viable option if you've got a family with kids and suitcases and all the rest of it. Getting the bus to the airport is not necessarily the viable option for you. Mm. Now, another issue is Ryanair mentioning um, or last last month announcing that it was pulling 17 routes from Dublin. This is because of some charges issues that they have with the Dublin airport. And now Aer Lingus, in the piece that you wrote, sort of threatening to, to relocate some flights. Can you just take us through the various uh, problems that the airlines have and, and what they're saying about this? Just in Ryanair, I, I, I understand it. I, I could be wrong, but I, I understand that Ryanair felt that you know there weren't enough incentives for you know the more environmentally efficient planes, if you like. But that's something that the DAA have rejected. And then Aer Lingus, they have a base in 2021. The UK arm Aer Lingus launched transatlantic flights from Manchester to the US and the Caribbean, and this would be, you know, obviously Aer Lingus would have a big transatlantic flight schedule from Dublin as well. And um, this business actually generated a profit of 5.1 million last year. Revenue soared to just under 87 million. So there are, you know, potentially other options for these airlines. Mm. Um, and and Lynn Embleton, the, the CEO of Aer Lingus there, um, she, she has been quite forceful, hasn't she? Has, you know, has that surprised you about how, you know, um, emphatic she has been and how, I suppose, hard-nosed she's been about calling on the government to do more? Yeah, I was. I was on that call with her two reporters the, the day that IAG had results. And I was surprised at, you know, what she said in some respects. But then also this is a business. Mm. And if she's been asked to reduce her revenue, then obviously you are going, to, that is going to be a concern 
for you. So that that was what she was vocalizing. Yeah. And I suppose I'm just looking at the, the companies, the different perspectives of the companies. Do you think that, you know, Ryanair can be more agile than Aer Lingus when it comes to, you know, taking their business elsewhere? Sure. I mean, as I said, Aer Lingus do have that hub in Manchester. It is now profitable for them. So, yes, they do a lot of US routes, but they can now do them from Manchester as well. It's not just exclusively a Dublin thing that they do. And certainly in terms of a, if you're looking at the other airports as well, it's worth mentioning. I do think Dublin is, is where they want to be at primarily. Yeah, and, and it's unfortunate because, as you mentioned there, the, the two other airports, Shannon and Cork, they do have a lot to offer. And it really seems that um, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of effort put into more regional development. I was listening to Porik Okadia talking about Shannon Airport, for example, who can take double the figures they have at the moment. And Cork maybe could take a capacity of eight to nine million. So certainly Shannon and Cork are both two excellent airports here as well. Yeah. Now, Ali, um, you also uh, had another story about this, which was the intervention of the Taoiseach in relation to um, the cap at Dublin Airport. What was he saying about it? Yes, I spoke to Taoiseach last week on this and he said that the cap doesn't make sense in terms of tourism, in terms of our economy, in terms of people to people contacts around the world. He did say that, you know, yes, there is the option of using boats or sailing, but that, you know, aviation is primarily how people get in and out. And that Ireland could potentially lose out on new routes was another concern that he had. Mm. And, you know, politically, I suppose, we're coming in now to local election campaigns and also um, a general election uh, next year. Um, Tourism is a huge issue. So is FDI. How do you think this issue could play out in the context of the upcoming election? Do you think it could become a bit of a political pawn? It's, it's going to be interesting, Mandy. Even yesterday, several Green Party elected representatives hit back at proposals to lift the cap on Dublin Airport. So this could be very interesting on many levels. For now, my sense is that it is more a row kind of higher level. It's not really a row that consumers are, you know, feel that they're impacted by yet. But I mean, maybe if it is going to curtail growth into the future, it could well, you know, come more into the public domain in that sense. You're right. We're very selfish, really, when it comes to things like airports. We just really care about our own journey through it and not about the big business side of it. But as you pointed out um, earlier, this is business. Like for Aer Lingus, it's big business. And for Ryanair, it's like huge business. It is also a very resilient business, though, because it's bounced back from everything from 9-11. It had the bounce back after the global crisis, even the pandemic. They're never really happy, though, are they, as an industry? They just want more. No, but I think as well, demand is, consumer demand is mm. there. I, I took a look today at figures from 10 years ago, 2013. Um, Dublin Airport welcomed 20.1 million. We're now talking about figures of 32 million passengers a year. There seems to be more routes than ever. Perhaps maybe people have a bit more disposable income. And people want to travel more. And you don't. It's, the demand is there. These airlines wouldn't be putting on these extra routes if there wasn't the demand there from the paying public. You're absolutely right. Um, the demand, that's what's driving all of this ultimately. Uh, finally, Ellie, I just want to end off with a, um, a question about the carbon side of this. I don't know if you'll have seen earlier in the week people talking about maybe uh, aiming for tourism, which was more high end, but less carbon intensive. Um, and as you said, there's pushback from the Green Party about expanding the 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 airport for more numbers but as you say like the demand is there where does the carbon emissions um, 
piece fit into this argument about expanding Dublin Airport even more? I mean, that's certainly going to be a feature of it. And it will certainly it will be interesting to see how that plays out between the Greens and the government on all of this. And it's certainly something that we all need to be more conscious of in this debate. Well, there's certainly no sign of our appetite to get off this island waning. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That was Ellie Donnelly of The Business Post. Ellie, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. Up next, Trump on trial. Joe Miller from the Financial Times was in the courtroom in New York and he'll be here after this short break. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. Now, New York is the home of Broadway, but all the drama on Monday was focused in a courtroom where former President Donald Trump took the stand in a civil case which could see him branded as a fraud and even debar him and his family from doing business in New York. Well, through the form, the former president made the most of his time in the witness box and tried to to rally support for his base and that's not unusual for him. So I'm delighted now to be joined by Joe Miller from the Financial Times who's going to tell us exactly what happened this week. Joe, you're very welcome back to Taking Stock. Great to be with you again, man. Joe, where did you watch the the court case this week? Uh, I was in the courthouse itself, um, which has become sort of a regular occurrence these days to uh, head down to Lower Manhattan to see something to do with Donald Trump take place in a courtroom. Um, but this one was quite different, I've got to say. Uh, you know, you used to see in the sorts of, um, you know, gesticulations and shouting and, you know, gavel bashing in legal dramas, that sort of thing never really happens in courtrooms. But Monday was really the exception that provided all of the drama turned into a political pantomime within a few minutes of Donald Trump taking the stand. Um, so uh, it was one of those few moments that rewarded going down there. Yeah, he's never uh, not entertaining, uh, to <laughs> say the least. Um, Joe, actually, just we might start off by reminding us exactly what this particular case is about. Um, it's a civil case. It's different. Um, who took the case and what does it set out to do? It is. Uh, it was billed as, or at least among the, you know, the press corps covering all of the various Trump uh, legal issues, as one of the least important cases facing the former president. Uh, but it's turned into a blockbuster case, um, and essentially, the contours of it are, um, as you mentioned, it's a civil case brought by the Attorney General of New York, Letitia James, uh, last year in which her office alleges that Donald Trump, his elder sons and his businesses vastly inflated the value of their real estate portfolio, which of course is how the family made its name in New York, in order to get more favorable loans from Deutsche Bank and other lenders, in other words, to say that they had more money than they actually had. Mm. Um, And um, this is now going to trial to decide exactly what penalties, if any, will be imposed on on Trump and his family and his businesses. Now, what's happening in the courtroom itself um, is quite interesting. But also, the judge has already ruled ahead of this trial that the the fraud has been committed. So the trials that are taking place now, what is that to determine? That's right. That's when this case really blew up, is that in a somewhat unexpected ruling on the eve of the trial, the judge in a partial summary judgment essentially ruled that um, Donald Trump and his other sons and his businesses had uh, committed fraud and had inflated the value of their golf courses and real estate in Manhattan and uh, various other properties across the US by billions of dollars. Mm. Um, and this trial has essentially become 
um, a theatre in which um, the various sides get to have their say. And then at the end, supposedly, we're going to get a little bit more clarity as to what uh, penalties will be imposed against Trump and his kids and, and the businesses that he runs. And it could involve, as you mentioned earlier, him being banned um, from doing business in New York full stop and an enormous fine, something to the tune of $250 million. Uh, and this is why Donald Trump, who usually stays away from you know the uh, legal proceedings as much as he can, that's why he's been coming to this trial um, fairly often. That's why he took the stand um, in his own defense, so to speak. Um, and um, this is why it's become sort of the fulcrum of all of his various legal troubles. Mm. Now, I want to ask you a question about that specifically. You said there that this is where they get to have their say. So three mm. of Donald Trump's children testified. He testified. Um, as I understand it, Ivanka was compelled. Why would the others choose to testify? In a civil case, is that in your favour if you set out your stall or does it go against you if you don't? Um, not necessarily, although it's very difficult to tell because this is a bench trial. So okay. it's up to the judge and the judge himself as to whether he was to say, you know, consider someone not appearing as, uh, you know, uh, unfavorable. Um, but in terms of Donald Trump, um, it was, seemed very clear that he wanted to have his say from day one, or at least from when that judgment came down. He's been railing against the judge uh, on his um, social platform. Uh, he's been railing against Letitia James, the Democratic Attorney General, who brought the case. He's been calling it a political witch hunt. And he has actually, you know, a very in a very rare move, usually he doesn't really tackle the specifics of a, of a particular case, but he has been taking the AG's arguments head on. And what he's saying is that actually, you know, my properties were worth um, this much um, and um, you're miscalculating all of this. But also he claims that there is no victim in this case because the lenders who lent to um, the Trump organization, you know, based on this valuation, they've all been paid back. Um, and that includes Deutsche Bank. And he says, well, who, where's the harm here? You know, and that's what he said on the stand. There is no victim. There is no victim. He said that again and again. And it's it's very, very clear watching him and especially watching him on Monday on the stand that he feels personally aggrieved by all of this because it goes to the very heart of his mythology as a successful New York business person, you know, built himself up by identifying good real estate investments and, you know, making them um, more profitable and uh, more valuable as he as he climbed the ladder. And this case essentially says that was all built on a lie. Um, and he seems very, very keen to, to debunk that. Uh, Ivanka, who managed to take herself out of the case already, saying that um, she hadn't really got any involvement in any of the issues at hand, she, as you say, was compelled um, to, to come and testify by the AG's team. Uh, presumably because they wanted to draw a link between her and some of those financial statements, which um, yesterday or Wednesday in in, uh, in court, they didn't really manage to do. Yeah, I want to get to Donald Trump himself in a moment. But before I do, can you take me through a little bit of, um, of the testimony of Donald Jr. and Eric? Um, particularly, I just was interested in the demeanour of both of them. Were they the same? Were they the same as their father or were they different from each other? How did they behave? <laughs> well, no one was the same as their father. That's definitely. Um, well, that's true. good. <laughs> um, 
Donald Jr. was a little bit more combative than um, Eric. Um, he, uh, of course, had a bigger role uh, in um, the Trump organization, uh, is Donald Trump's eldest son. Um, but he essentially said that, look, these financial statements that are at the heart of this case, the so-called statement of financial condition in which uh, it evaluated Donald Trump's net worth as being way above $4 billion. That's a figure that the AG's office says is completely made up. He says, look, you know, we employ accountants for this sort of thing. Um, I left it to them. He distanced himself from, you know, all of that. He said, you know, they worked on it. That's what we paid them for. Uh, these people had incredible knowledge and, and I relied on them. So that's the sort of uh, defense that we heard from from him. Um, from Eric, um, it was a little bit um, more testy uh, mm. <laughs> witness stand. Um, you know, he uh, denied awareness of, of the report itself um, and said that um, – you know, it was kind of sarcastic because, of course, we have financial statements. We're a massive real estate organization, uh, etc. Uh, but similarly, the, the you know the bulk the, the 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 real gist of his defense was: look, um, you know, we had other people do this, and he said he didn't recall many, many times. Well, of course, that's no defense anymore. If you sign those documents, there are consequences. So they're presumably not going to, to be allowed to get away with that part of it. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. I'm speaking with Joe Miller of the Financial Times, who was in the courtroom where Donald Trump took the stand uh, earlier this week. Now, moving to the man himself. Um, as you said earlier, Joe, this is seems to be very personal to Donald Trump. But I guess, really, there's huge consequences for him if him and his family are debarred from doing business. Um, is there, the, the, from the defence's point of view, from his defence's point of view, do you think that it was a right tactic for him to take the stand, knowing what we know now, how he behaved? Did he add anything to his defence, do you think? Uh, I certainly don't think so. He may have riled up his base and, um, you know, helped paint this whole proceeding as what he calls, you know, a very unfair and uh, um, trial and a disgrace. And at one point, I think he said, I hope the public is watching. And that seemed to be the whole tenor of his testimony was to get up there knowing, you know, that there were hundreds of journalists uh, watching this, that it would get blanket coverage and that he would get a chance to say that, look, all of this is a political witch hunt and they're coming after me. And, you know, he, he didn't reiterate this line as much in person, but his his defense team have been saying, you know, there's a successful business in New York and um, thousands of jobs are at stake, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so in that kind of sense, uh, I think he, he certainly got his message across. Whether he endeared himself to the judge who will ultimately decide this case, well, um, it didn't seem so. The uh, Judge Arthur Engron, who, who's presiding over this was irritated almost at the get-go uh, with Donald Trump not answering questions um, directly with, you know, yes or no answers. And within a few minutes, he yelled at um, Christopher Keyes, one of Trump's attorneys, saying, you know, I beseech you to control your client if you can, and if you can't, I will. Um, and there was, um, you know, as I say, the sort of drama that you really very, very rarely get in a, in a courtroom. Um, Angeron barked at some of the other Trump lawyers to sit down um, he, you know, shouted for various answers to be stricken. Um, it, it, there was an awful lot of sort of finger pointing. At some point, Trump just turned to the judge, you know, and said, you, you know, you don't even know me and you, you ruled against me on all of this and seemed personally aggrieved. Um, so a, as a spectacle, you know, 
it it worked for journalists. It probably worked for his supporters. Um, I'm not sure it helped his legal case very much. Mm. And what's the atmosphere like in a courtroom when, when that type of thing happens? It must be a bit surreal, is it? Yes, I suppose so. It's got a little bit less surreal because it's so normalised now. Um, yeah, it's become a little bit more normalised now. And I mean, you know, especially among the press corps, you get this sense of weariness, you know, oh, here we go again. You can almost pre-write what he's going to say and fill in the quotes, you know, as he says them. Um, uh, so in that sense, I, you know, it, it's it's perhaps becoming less surreal. Mm. Um, to me, I think that the, the, the thing that is, um, you know, quite surreal is that... Donald Trump can be brought to heel by, you know, what is now, this is a, a case in state court. It's essentially in a dilapidated building in lower Manhattan, you know, with paint peeling off the walls and, and not very much in terms of sophisticated infrastructure. And, you know, this could be the next president of the United States, you know, brought to heel by one of the lower rungs of the justice system, mm. uh, not to mention all of the other cases in which he's involved. And it really drives home that, you know, Donald Trump may be able to evade accountability on the political level. Um, but on the judicial level, on the legal level, um, he's not yet able to do so. No, he's not able to avoid it. But he does still behave in a similar way in a courtroom, a rule of law, um, as he does in you know, a political rally setting. So his behaviour isn't changing himself. He's just treating it exactly the same as he would if he were in a massive um, air hangar speaking to his own supporters and his own base. So when you think about the other cases that are coming up um, for him now and the other attorneys who might be advising him, do you think that they'll look at this and see him as an asset in any of those cases? Do you think that he will continue to just, as you said earlier, stay away from those cases? Or do you think that this might give him um, sort of a, I don't know what, an appetite to to use again a court as, as, as another stage for himself? Well, I think firstly the premise that Donald Trump's lawyers have any control over how he will or will not orchestrate his defence um, is somewhat for the birds. Um, having spoken to some of them privately, they've admitted as much. Um, but um, I think that uh, what's interesting is that some of Donald Trump's lawyers from the other matters, uh, the, the criminal matters in, in D.C. and in Florida, uh, they were in the courtroom on some days and on the day that Trump testified, clearly having a look at how their client performs on the stand. And I would not be surprised if they went away thinking, how on earth do I get this guy to make sure he doesn't testify in the um, you know, eminently more serious cases um, coming down the pike? Um, that said, it's always the defendant's choice, not the defense counsel's choice to uh, mm. testify in one's own defense in a, in a criminal trial in the U.S. So if Donald Trump wants to take the stand, which I imagine he would, you know, in any of these cases, whether it's the election interference one or the classified documents one or the Georgia one, um, you know, he's allowed to do that. And he's allowed to do that right at the last minute if he changes his mind. Um, and, uh, you know, if he gets a feeling that the case isn't going his way, then, you know, who knows? I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if he did that. Um, he might not get the same platform that he got here because federal court is a, you know, far more, uh, has far more decorum than, than state court does. Um, and um, I doubt he would be uh, allowed to get away with the ranting that he got away with on Monday in front of a federal judge. But I doubt that would stop him. No, I doubt very much that anything can stop him. Um, but uh, Joe, listen, it was a pleasure to talk to you again today and thank you very much for taking the time to be with us this weekend, which I'm sure is very busy for you. That was Joe Miller of the Financial Times. Joe, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Thank you.
You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. Coming up after the break, WeWork, the office leasing company, came crashing down this week. After the break, we'll hear about the rise and spectacular fall of the company. You're welcome back to News Talk's Taking Stock. Now, this week, the office sharing company WeWork filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in the US after struggling with huge debt problems. The US-listed firm said in a statement that it had entered into a restructuring support agreement with stakeholders to try and reduce the company's debt. Joining me now to get a better understanding of how WeWork went from unicorn to lame duck is Elliot Brown. He's a reporter for The Wall Street Journal and author of The Cult of We, Adam Newman and The Great Startup Delusion. Elliot, you're very welcome to News Talk. Happy to be here. Now, Elliot, when the book actually was first published, I spoke to your colleague Maureen, who wrote this book with you about the book. It's a fantastic book and uh, it's a very thrilling one, which kind of really sets out uh, the, the story of, of, of Adam Newman and the, the cult of WeWork itself. So if anyone hasn't had a look at it and, and are looking for a, a good read about the company's history, I think that's a great place to start. But maybe, um, Elliot, we'll start there before we get into what happened this week. Just take us through the concept of WeWork and maybe a little bit about who Adam Newman was, is. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And for, for credibility's sake, her, her, my co-author's last name is Farrell. So, so uh, you, you know, she, she would be very happy to hear we're back on Irish radio. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, WeWork was, was, is, is and was this, this most mesmerizing tale of startups of the 2010s where basically, I think I, I described the short version as this, this, this uh, incredibly talented salesman, Adam Newman, uh, who, who came from you know smaller entrepreneurship, was able to raise over ten million dollars for for uh, a effectively a, a, a not very valuable real estate company that that he was able to sell to a top roster of investors as though it were a tech company. Mm. And like that was his big skill, wasn't it? His his ability to actually draw people in and get these huge investments from the likes of JP Morgan and of course SoftBank maybe give us an idea of how much he was able to fundraise yeah I, you know so so uh it's it, it was one of the the biggest hauls ever of of, of any startup for, for for context i mean for for 10 billion dollars you, you could buy uh WeWork's main competitor which is actually the same size as it at this point uh, I think five times. Um, you, you could. Uh, my, my my references are probably a little outdated here, but 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 you know you could buy a lot of airlines. Yeah. For the entire thing, I, I mean, it, it, it's an extraordinary amount of money, and and you know what he would do is he would just make you feel in this this what they call a distortion field where he'll talk about the future in such a convincing and compelling way, and about how they are absolutely going to open up full when they open up in nine months in Portland that, that you just believe him. Mm. You, you don't realize that he doesn't know, actually know what's going to happen. Yeah, of course, all this was happening in 2018, 2019. So it did seem like a good concept maybe to, you know, have that shared office space, a vibrant space, which the likes of Facebook now Meta were actually kind of, um, they seemed like the avant-garde offices. So, you know, he had a good concept. Um, he was unlucky with timing, but his own sort of um, what's it, culture within the company wasn't exactly traditional, was it? No, he he was kind of a horrific manager. Uh, you know, he he would one day decide that that we need to to, to fire twenty percent of, of of people a year, 
the bottom 20%, the B players, uh, and, and, you know, then, then sort of set staff out on that. He, he was always kind of accused of hypocrisy. He'd, he'd declare that the whole company was going to be vegetarian. And then the next week someone would see him eating a lamb bone, uh, you know, a lamb chop in public, uh, as he had, you know, he, he made that decision while apparently on, on a sailing on the, his private jet, uh, which he had we work by uh, and, and you know there was also just extraordinary personal spending he 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 just took gobs of money out of WeWork while he was CEO uh, through through stock sales and loans and and then just had this inc- voracious appetite for for living large and he bought seven homes he he uh, would have a, a, an entourage of 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 uh, surf instructors and and teachers and hair a hairstylist that, mm. that would follow him around mm. and of course all this fundraising eventually he was and repeatedly running out of money it all led to an IPO in the end can you just give us a flavor of, of what the offering was and how that was received? Yeah, so so in 2019, they basically had he had traveled the globe and raised as much money as he could from from the private world, and there was no more to raise. And and yet WeWork was still losing two billion plus a year, and so uh, he he needed more money. And and the only real place to to get that was the public markets. So they tried to IPO and um, you know list publicly in on, in New York and. Uh, they had to bear all. They 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 showed the world their numbers, and and I think people looked at that. They they looked at all of these kind of conflicts of interest, where where Adam owned four buildings, sticks in four buildings that he was renting to the company, um, and, and and he had taken out all this money, and and it, they just said this company's worth nowhere near what you think it is. Um, which at the time was $47 billion uh, that they were hoping for. And uh, they had to, to pull the IPO and, and then Adam was quickly pushed out as, as uh, CEO. Mm. I should mention here his wife also because she's quite um, an influential figure in, in his whole progression, isn't she? Yeah, Rebecca Newman. I mean, she, she's, she really contributed from, from the beginning uh, the kind of spiritual community squishy aspects of, of WeWork. She, <laughs> she, uh, she's the first cousin of Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, she, she sort of, you know, would come up with these hokey phrases like, um, how, uh, the, when WeWork changed its motto to, or its slogan to how the, uh, elevating the world's consciousness or their mission statement was to elevate the world's consciousness. I think that that was her handiwork. Mm. Um, and, and she, she also pushed Adam to, to start a, a, a WeWork L, uh, preschool, um, We Grow, where, where it was a sort of holistic minded and um, entrepreneurship focused preschool. Yeah. And, and one of the other things that back in back in your book with, with Maureen Farrell that it questions is this concept of um, the cult of the founder and this sort of obsession, I suppose, that these investors had with investing in a figure like Adam Newman. We saw it with um, um, Elizabeth Holmes as well and, and in some respects with, with uh, Sam Bankman-Fried more recently. There was this kind of fervour, wasn't there, around these types of kind of cult-type figures to try and give them investment? Yeah, I, I think that the, 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 this this cult of the founder w- is is one of the biggest causes of of you know those two crashes you mentioned, you know Theranos and, and FTX, as well as a whole bunch of other uh, sort of less dramatic um, you know financial failures uh, of these companies. I mean, basically, it, there was kind of this meme in in, in Silicon Valley investing, and, mm. and to a certain extent, still is where where they just see these 
founders as omnipotent beings be, be sort of in the mold of Steve Jobs. Uh, and they, they give them all the power. So, so even if a founder only owns 10% of the company, 20% of the company, and the investors have give, given it all of the money to, to do all these things, generally the, the, the founder still gets to, to be in charge. And, and they also look for people with, with some crazy to them. Mm. So it's, it's this really dangerous recipe that, that we've now seen play out again and again in really bad ways where, where you're giving, you know, oftentimes people who are a little crazy, sometimes really crazy, actually crazy uh you know hundreds of millions billions of dollars um and the keys to the car so, absolutely so yeah when what you, possibly could go wrong when when you look at the amount that softbank alone invested in this it's quite incredible if you're just tuning in you're listening to news talks taking stock and i was speaking to elliot brown who's a reporter for the wall street journey and he's also an author of the book the cult of we work and we're speaking about adam newman and about that business and what happened with it more recently now elliot this is a story of two halves and uh, as as we know this week there were developments on the company front, Adam Newman departed. What happened since then, and what do you think the um, the measures that were announced this week mean for the company globally? Yeah, so I think if we work sort of as a, a two act play, and Act One, um, the much longer act, was uh, being the dazzling startup of the 2010s that that sort of uh, checked all the boxes of stereotypical uh, unsustainable startups that came out of Silicon Valley. And then Act Two was really that they were trying to make a, a sort of a, a, a um, you know, modest, uh, more boring comeback as a real estate company. And so they hired a real estate CEO. They, they no longer wanted to be a, a trillion dollar company. They, they, they were, were happy to, um, you know, keep their, their ambitions in the low billions. Uh, but, um, so, so right as they, 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 they laid off gobs of staff, they, they, they sold the private jet. They, they really made efforts to, to sort of, Turn course, but but they hired a new CEO who was experienced in real estate, and he took over in February 2020. Mm. So weeks into the job, uh, it, you know, COVID hits, offices shut down, and then we were like it's sort of main Achilles' heel uh, in the business model. Put aside the kind of crazy spending on jets, but the basic business model. The Achilles heel is that they they are renting long term with landlords and then subleasing short term to businesses. And so if if you only have a month long lease with WeWork as a small business and COVID hits, you're just going to you know cancel it. Yeah, it's the perfect storm really for a business, isn't it? Like of that nature, um, literally the whole world shuts down. And then in the aftermath of COVID, we really don't know what the working landscape looks like even still you could say we're still in that hybrid situation but also there's a lot of doubt around commercial properties everywhere yeah it's i mean the the, the I, I sort of covered the last office bust after mm. the great financial crisis when i was writing about real estate and and th- this is a real office bust i mean this is it is you have you have an enormous amount of, of square footage in, in, in the U S in particular, that's, that's effectively going to be useless if, if trends hold, uh, because you know, if, if 30% of fewer people are coming to the office, uh, then, then the, the, you just don't need that many office buildings. So that has the effect of pushing rents down everywhere. Mm. And so if you're in a, WeWork, 
Uh, and you can go across the street to a not WeWork and and pay less money for more space. Uh, you're going to do it, and and so that's effectively the the what WeWork uh, has been struggling with. So even if people want to be in their spaces, which some people do, uh, the, the prices that they can fetch for that are are generally just too low because the market rent has fallen and yet their costs have stayed the same. Mm. Now they've they've filed for Chapter 11 in the US and I think Canada also, but they are keeping the, the, the sentiment about their more global operations uh, positive for now. They've got a they've got a, a big footprint here in Dublin, actually, in Ireland, and they do plan to occupy one of our more you know, iconic buildings actually in the city centre. So there's a lot of um, interest in what happens to them. Elliot, what you've been obviously looking at this company for a long time and you've seen the trajectory right through. What is your assessment of what they were trying to do with last week's announcement and how do you see um, them moving forward both in the US and maybe over here in Europe as well? Yeah, so so I mean, I, one one high level point is is uh, is point out is it's a, it's a restructuring. So, mm. so the, the, I think uh, you know I could be wrong, but I, I think it's a, a viable model. You you just have to get the cost right. And so their main plan in the U.S. is to just get rid of of dozens of leases that are they're they're paying too much where they're they're losing money, and then sort of shrink down um, inside the turtle shell uh, and 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 make. Uh, you know, to enough locations where they can actually make money. One of the, I, I apologize, I don't know the, the, like the specifics of their Dublin, uh, mm-hmm. you know, economics, but but generally the, uh, you know, in broad brush, the um, the EU and the UK, they they and other office landlords, like office occupancy is better in this part of the world than it is in the US. You know, I'm based in London, and you've just seen um, people come back to the office a lot faster than in the US, where it's really plateaued at, at sort of lower levels. Um, and, and so, you know, there's, there's probably a lot of reasons for that, but, but for, for an office building owner and an office co-working company mm-hmm. that it, it, they, they can actually make money here in, in a way that, that you can't in New York City. And what's the, in the company now, is, is the value of the company largely capital assets? I mean, I know in the early days they, they probably bought a lot of assets and didn't fill the spaces. Are they sitting with those assets now? And do you think that it's a viable um, option or is there any sense... Do you have any sense that the brand, the WeWork brand, is just a bad brand for investment now? Um, I yeah, I don't. I mean, you know, I, I think the, the, they spent a lot of money building up the brand. I, I think, um, yeah, it's it's not toxic in that sense. I, mm. Like, I, I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't um, want to have an enormous amount of space with them right now <laughs> in the U.S. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I think that what'll likely happen is the, they'll likely be able to cancel. Uh, a fair amount of leases, they'll, they'll get rid of their debt, and then it will be worth something. The, it, the almost exact thing happened on a smaller scale with Regis in, in um, a, after the dot-com bust. Regis was, uh, at the time, which is now called IWG, th- they, they went public uh, and said they, they, they were sort of riding the tech wave of, of, of the late 90s, early 2000s. And then when the, the dot-com bust happened, all their tenants left. They, they had to file for bankruptcy in the U.S., um, and you know the stock went to zero or near zero, and then they regrouped, and now you know they're bigger. They're they're not very valuable, but they're worth something. 
Um, and, uh, you know, people pay for their product. It's, it's uh, like there is some demand for flexible office space uh, and uh, sort of enough to make, make it work, at least for, for some companies. Mm. Just before I let you go, Elliot, um, for you, it, it's the story that keeps on giving. Um, can you remember the moment when you sat down and said to yourself, look, I want to do a book about this guy or this company? Was there a, was there a, was there a gotcha moment where you said, yeah, this is going to this is not going to end well? Um, yeah, I think I was it, in, in the, in early 2019, it was it just sort of like, I was realizing that there was just one conflict after another. There was one crazy anecdote <laughs> after another where, 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 you know, uh, like the, there's too much pot on the private jet that the pilots have to wear oxygen masks. The, 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 you know, a, a, Adam fires 7% of staff and then brings announces it and then brings out, uh, run DMC or members of run DMC to, to play a party. I mean, it's just a lot of that. It's like sort of made for a movie or, or a book. And, uh, then it became the country's most valuable startup after Uber went public. And I, I think that that was spring 2019. I, I yeah, was, was like really pondering it then. And then it, it all kind of spiraled uh, and, and you signed up to do it with Maureen. Well, it is a great book. It is called The Cult of We, Adam Newman and the Great Startup Delusion. And I was delighted to speak to one of its authors, Elliot Brown, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Elliot, thank you very much for being with us today. It's been a delight. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and why we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app or wherever you get your podcasts from. My thanks as always to all of today's guests for giving us their time and their very valuable insights. I also want to thank the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Jack MacDonald and Stephen Daunt on research and Hugo De Silva Scott on sound. If you have any comments for us on today's show, you can get in contact with us on takingstock at newstalk.com. Stay tuned for Anton Savage, who is up next with all of your Sunday newspapers and lots, lots more. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.